BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Researchers are pushing back on a proposed rule change at the California Department of Justice. They say it could make studying gun violence in the state harder. KQED's Katie Orr reports. The state-funded Firearm Violence Research Center at UC Davis relies on the California DOJ for much of its data. But now the DOJ is considering whether to limit release of gun violence restraining order data. Research Center Director Garen Wintemute says the rule change would make it harder to complete critical research. There are other ways to do work on firearm violence that will matter without DOJ's data. But there are entire types of studies that can only be done um, with access to DOJ's data. The DOJ maintains it's trying to protect the privacy of people involved with the restraining order cases, but Wintemute points out the information is already a public record. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. In energy news, environmental and community groups have sued Kern County after its Board of Supervisors approved an ordinance this week that could fast-track tens of thousands of new oil and gas wells. The Sierra Club and other groups have asked a court to order county leaders to set aside the ordinance, which allows the county to use a blanket environmental impact report when considering permits for new wells and bar Kern County supervisors from approving any new drilling permits. A similar 2015 ordinance was struck down by an appeals court last year for violating the California Environmental Quality Act. And in education, two of the largest school districts in the state have moved a step closer to finalizing reopening plans. The Board of Education for both LA and San Francisco Unified have approved plans to reopen for in-person instruction. Teachers in San Francisco are expected to vote on the agreement this weekend, while a vote is scheduled next week by the Teachers Union in Los Angeles. If things go according to plan, both districts plan to start in-person instruction for elementary school students in mid-April. The L.A. Police Department mishandled the protests and unrest that followed the killing of George Floyd last spring. That's the finding of a detailed and very critical report commissioned by the L.A. City Council. Among the LAPD's shortcomings, a lack of training, poor communication, and minimal coordination that led to a fragmented response to the protests. With more, here's KCRW's Matt Gillum. This review was spearheaded by a group of former police department commanders, led by attorney Gerald Chaliff, who's looked at the LAPD's mishandling of past unrest. They found problems in the response at all levels, from on-the-ground officers to top brass. According to the report, many police only received a couple hours of training on using less lethal munitions, which seriously injured several demonstrators. 
planning for mass arrests was minimal and led to people being detained for hours on end, and police higher-ups issued contradictory orders. The report also said so-called shadow teams of undercover officers were sent into the crowds to gather information, but had insufficient means of relaying their intel back to authorities. Many of these problems have been called out in the past. Nearly two dozen recommendations for improvements are in the report, including regular audits to ensure the department is complying with settlements. The LAPD is working on its own analysis of the response, and a third review from the LA Police Commission is also in the works. For the California Report, I'm Matt Gillum. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. New numbers from L.A. County's child welfare system show a significant spike in the number of children in the state's care during 2020. But does this mean more children were abused or neglected last year? Well, not exactly, says reporter Deepa Fernandez in Los Angeles, who gives us this closer look. Child Protection Hotline, my name is Catherine. How may I help you? I'm inside the Hotline Hub where social workers from the Department of Children and Family Services field hundreds of calls a day from anyone who suspects a child is being abused or neglected. Is this the first time you see something like this, or do you think it might be the way it looks on the screen? Calling in is a first-grade teacher who noticed during her Zoom class that one of her little students had a black eye, but she isn't sure how he got it. COVID added new challenges for reporting child abuse, says DCFS Director Bobby Cagle. It's very difficult to tell when a child is suffering the effects of being isolated just because of COVID-19, or if that is something that is due to the fact that the child has been harmed in some way. Cagle had his department step up training to teachers in how to recognise signs of abuse when on Zoom. And despite all these challenges... DCFS reported a big spike in the children in its care for 2020. That is about a 3,000-child increase, and that's about 10%. To help understand the numbers, think about it this way. Over the past five years, the number of children in LA's child welfare system has hovered around 35,000. It's slowly crept upwards, but never by more than 200 kids a year. So... 3,535 more children in the system in a single year is a massive spike. So why the big increase, I asked Cagle. I think we'll have to dig a little more deeply to better understand exactly what's behind that. But I think, you know, this could be indicative of some of the challenges that families are facing during the pandemic. A department spokesperson added that the higher numbers do not mean more children were removed from their homes last year due to abuse. The pandemic caused courts to close, meaning fewer open cases were closed and fewer adoptions finalised. So children who would have had their cases closed did not. What we are seeing is that the impact on the children has been 
significant. Leslie Hymov runs the Children's Law Centre, which provides an attorney to every child who's removed from their parents. There's been a significant decline in the amount of face-to-face contact that children are having with their parents, with their siblings, with their extended family. Children suffered, Hymov says, because so much visiting happened on video chat. Even well-intentioned case extensions to help parents comply with court orders caused hardship, Hymov adds. Giving a family an extra six months a year down the road to reunify doesn't undo the damage that was perpetrated when they were physically separated from each other for three months, six months, nine months, however long it was that they weren't able to have that incredibly important face-to-face contact. Dennis Schmiel oversees the five law firms that represent most of the parents in the system. While his attorneys have had to take on a lot more cases during the pandemic, he does see some silver linings. It used to be that if you were a long-haul truck driver, you had to make the choice between losing income or appearing at your court hearings. Now we have remote hearings that I hope we'll, we'll be able to use whenever parents can't appear personally. Courts are ramping back up, and advocates are hopeful more cases will begin to close in the coming months. For The California Report, I'm Deepa Fernandez in Los Angeles. The federal government is reportedly looking for vacant facilities in California and elsewhere to house migrant children who've crossed the U.S.-Mexico border recently without a parent or guardian. KQED's Farida Javala Romero explains. At the start of the pandemic, President Trump essentially closed down the border for migrants seeking asylum, including an estimated 8,800 unaccompanied children that border authorities expelled in the first six months of the policy. President Biden agreed to allow these kids to seek protection here, and more than 9,000 crossed the border just last month. That has surpassed the space at available shelters. Which is why they're looking to open temporary influx facilities. Attorney Melissa Adamson in San Mateo is counsel in a settlement that governs how federal authorities treat migrant children in their custody. She worries about the conditions for kids at these influx facilities because they don't have to be licensed by the state, like regular shelters do. Whatever influx facility they choose to open, it's really essential that they have safeguards for children and that they have really transparent oversight over the treatment of children. The U.S. Office of Refugee Resettlement houses unaccompanied minors until officials can vet sponsors in the U.S. to care for the kids while they pursue their immigration case. For The California Report, I'm Farida Javala-Romero. In a court filing, the Biden administration and the American Civil Liberties Union announced this week that they're entering into settlement negotiations to resolve a three-year lawsuit over family separations. For years, advocates and lawyers have been working to reunify children who were separated from their parents or guardians by the Trump administration's hardline zero-tolerance policy. With a story about a father in Honduras from our sister show, The California Report magazine, here's KQED's Michelle Wiley. Hola, buenos días. Estamos aquí ya preparándonos para poder salir. It's 5 a.m. in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, and Dora Malara is already awake. She's getting ready for a long drive, four hours in the pouring rain. Ya tenemos lista la documentación, maletas. She packs light, some important documents, and sandwiches for the road in an overnight bag. Her mission is to locate a father. She has some clues, his name and where he might live. 
She knows his teenage son was taken away from him at the U.S. border in 2018, and the father was deported without him. Dora, a lawyer in her 40s, is working with Justice in Motion, a U.S. nonprofit. Its goal is to connect with deported parents, to see if they've reunited with their kid or if they're still separated, do they know where their kids are, and to let them know they have options. Perhaps they can now return to the U.S. with legal status. She's never sure she'll find the parent she's looking for, but she's hopeful. Pero esperamos encontrarles y bueno, que el camino esté bonito. <laughs> Over WhatsApp, Dora shared videos and photos of her journey, and she's led more than three dozen quests like this. Many are successful. She searched for parents during the pandemic, navigating curfews. She's making this trip after deadly hurricanes have pummeled the area, displacing at least 150,000 people. Just two hours into the drive, Dora counts four rock slides. She spots homemade signs, warning about the damage. She's with a colleague, and they maneuver their Ford Escape around deep potholes. During these searches, Dora often relies on the kindness of strangers to point her toward the parent she's looking for. Here's how it works. After she's given a case, Dora starts trying to find ways to contact the parent, online or over the phone. But that can only take her so far. Often, she has to physically travel to their last known address to find out where the parent is. Sometimes they're there. Often they're not. So she asks around, talking to friends and neighbors, anyone who might know where the parent has gone. And getting this information requires building trust in person. That's why she drives for even the slimmest chance of finding this father, despite any dangers. That's how she found this town, through a tip from the father's former neighbor. Entonces esas son las cosas que para nosotros es muy importante que las personas nos miren, generar la confianza y que sepan qué andamos haciendo y por qué estamos interesados en buscarles. It's around noon and now it's time to see if the trust pays off. Bueno, ya estamos aquí en la comunidad. You can hear the rest of Michelle Wiley's story on this week's California Report magazine. Find the podcast for it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the California Report for this Friday, March 12th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Remember, you can listen to the California Report podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so check it out. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. And remember, it's daylight saving time this weekend. So watch your clocks. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about healthcare. On the web at chcf.org/voices. The James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2022 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid. And I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.